Well, good evening, everybody. Um, as you can see, I'm Michael Earle and the chair of our new Oxford Centre for the Study of Philanthropy at Green Templeton College. <clears throat> You're all very welcome. Thank you very much for coming. So just a few words about our new Oxford Centre for the Study of Philanthropy. <clears throat> Based at Green Templeton College, only just established, and it came out of various discussions with people and different ideas. Uh, one of the most influential people, although I don't think he realised it at the time, <coughs> was Alton Axe at the end, who's been talking about entrepreneurship and social enterprise and philanthropy, written a book on why philanthropy, philanthropy matters. And out of that conversation one day, uh, Stephen Barclay and I, who've been called the co-founders, came away saying, why, why, why don't we do something on philanthropy? And the college kindly funded a study uh, by Fiona Reid uh, on what's going on in the world of philanthropy from the perspective of research, not from education, but research. And we found two or three fairly common themes. First of all, not much. Secondly, that most of what was done was being linked with enterprise, with entrepreneurship, which is no bad thing, but it wasn't just focusing on uh, philanthropy. Hi, Stephen. <coughs> uh, thirdly, that quite a lot of what was going on was in business schools. Now, I'm not against business schools. I've been in business schools all my academic career. Uh, but what came out of the uh, research was really philanthropy needs to be a multidisciplinary study. And in the Oxford scene, having a, a research centre in a college encourages multidisciplinary interaction. So. <laughs> that was another reason why we thought this looked a good idea. But then, as we all know, <coughs> philanthropy has uh, been going on for centuries, and Frank is going to talk about that to a degree. Uh, uh, <coughs> but it seems to be going apace around the world in the 21st century, uh, to the point, as I was just saying on camera, that you know, governments are trying to encourage it, if not incentivize it. So it's a very big phenomenon. So the idea of our research centre is that we will do research, we won't be doing formal teaching, and we will be looking at three areas of work. One is the phenomenon of philanthropy, how it's grown, how it's evolved, what are the new areas, some of the whys and wherefores. Secondly, policy questions of philanthropy, the obvious questions like the influence of tax, tax regimes on philanthropy, <coughs> or how do foundations make their uh, distribution decisions. And practice questions such as what makes a good philanthropist <coughs> recipient relationship, or are there cross-cultural issues in philanthropy? The agenda is pretty wide. And what we decided we would do to start off with <coughs> is have a seminar series. So I should welcome you to our inaugural seminar. And the purpose of the seminar was so that uh, academics, uh, philanthropists, and professional advisors could share their knowledge on philanthropy <coughs> stimulated by talks. And from that, we hoped we would garner more support for the centre, get to know more people who would want to be involved, and in particular, help shape our research agenda. So our seminar series is part of how we shape our research agenda. And it did seem important to start off with with a view on the history of philanthropy. Uh, like many people, history and I did not get on together at school. And the older you get, of course, the more you appreciate history, not only because you were there sometimes, but also because we know we can learn from history and that uh, many things have happened in history which are being repeated, if only our politicians would recognise that. And so history seemed a pretty good place to start. In other words, take the long view. And uh, you may have seen uh, the uh, seminar series that we're planning uh, over the next nine months or so. Now I'd like to formally welcome and introduce Frank Prochaska. Several of you will know him as a historian. <clears throat> he specialised in the uh, history of modern Britain, and that includes the 19th century. He's taught at Yale and here at Oxford. 
um, for uh, a number of reasons. Perhaps is come back to Oxford and uh, is a member of uh, Somerville College and Wolfson College. <coughs> um, he's written several books, such as Woman and Women and Philanthropy in the 19th Century, Philanthropy in the Hospitals of London, and the Voluntary Impulse Philanthropy in Modern Britain. <coughs> Uh, if you've read any of those books, or indeed his papers, you will detect that uh, he's certainly a historian, but he goes into quite broad-ranging perspectives to uh, describe and analyse what has gone on in this world, including questions of governance and democracy and political science, role of religions, and so forth. So I'm sure it's going to be a really wide-ranging uh, paper and presentation on the history of philanthropy. The floor is yours, Frank. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Um, well, I was delighted to be asked to give this inaugural seminar on behalf of the Oxford Center for the Study of Philanthropy. I think its foundation is quite timely for the issues surrounding philanthropy today are of great import, including state partnerships, charitable independence, inequality, funding of the arts and universities. But Oxford is initiating this center is highly appropriate since so much of the recent expansion of the university has come from philanthropic donations, both large and small. Now, as we've been told, philanthropy is a subject that intersects with a host of disciplines from law and cultural anthropology, sociology, uh, sociology, theology, social policy. The center will be hosting a series of seminars, as we know, over the coming months which will link philanthropy to some of these specialist areas of research. I'm very pleased that for the first paper in the series, it was thought appropriate to approach an historian to provide some background to the current state of philanthropy and the issues facing it today. My talk is in part drawn from a lecture I gave to the annual public meeting of the Charity Commission last September. Clearly, Philanthropy is a subject in need of solid research, not least historical research. Point of view is important, however, and I would make a plea that whatever research is undertaken by the center, it be done from charitable records as far as possible. Rather too much research on philanthropy has been done from government records, which, though more readily accessible, can give a distorted picture of the subject. Any support the center could give to the collection and maintenance of charitable records would be invaluable. When I began my own studies into British charity in the early 1970s, the subject was deeply unfashionable. I think Brian can confirm this. The post-war generation of historians were much more interested in collective provision and typically looked on charity as patchy, amateurish, and redolent of Victorian values. There are books on Victorian social reform that ignore the subject of philanthropy altogether, which would dumbfound the Victorians. The phrase, From Charity to Social Work, which is the title of a book on welfare reform published in 1964, suggests the way in which charity was more commonly treated. It was of interest essentially because it paved the way for state intervention. In recent decades, for reasons both national and international, I will come on to those shortly, there has been a revival of interest in British philanthropy among a younger generation of scholars, some of whom are associated with the Voluntary Action History Society at London University. This revival is entirely fitting, for Britain has been a great crucible of charitable thought and action in the Western world. No other nation, not even the United States, which drew much of its charitable culture from Britain, has a more remarkable tradition of philanthropy. I would like to begin by touching on a few themes that may be of interest to today's meeting, but which do not often receive attention. They also question the received wisdom and the standard historical model that charity is essentially an activity that takes place between classes, that is, the better off giving to the poor. At the moment, there is a growing pressure on the rich to redistribute more of their wealth in the hope of bringing the two nations closer together. This is partly driven by the current worry about rising inequality. But while the benefactions of the rich make a contribution to reducing poverty, 
the emphasis on this issue reinforces the view that philanthropy is the preserve of the rich. Such emphasis tends to play into the theme of class division, which has long bedeviled proponents of philanthropy. There has been a tendency in the historiography to concentrate on the great benefactors and the great institutions. Clearly, the wealthy have contributed mightily to philanthropic enterprise, but we should not assume that they ever typified or towered over British philanthropy. Among the largest charities in the 19th century were the missionary and Bible societies, which raised most of their funds from modest donations through a system of auxiliaries spread throughout the country. In most of the great institutions, there have been countless small contributors and volunteers from across the social spectrum who have provided the backbone of the nation's civic pluralism and democratic participation. A preoccupation with rich benefactors and social inequality tends to overlook the protean role of charity in the lives of ordinary people or to address the wider political implications of voluntary action. An alternative history of philanthropy is introduced if you think of philanthropy more broadly to include the everyday expression of kindness. This encompasses a neighborly visit or a widow's mite as well as the momentous decisions of great charities with legislative programs. And it opens up charity significance at all levels of society within, within as well as between classes and reveals its implications for individuals, extended families, and local communities. In a world obsessed with celebrity, the work of humble contributors rarely makes the news. Yet today, as in the past, people of modest means carry out most charitable activity. I will say more about the charity of the poor to the poor shortly. But whatever the social origins of contributors, benevolence was often about providing relief and widening opportunities to selective cases. The 19th century charitable yearbooks record hundreds of agencies that catered to specific groups, from aged servants to decayed Etonians. Among others, there are institutions for the support of actors, artists, musicians, poets, playwrights, merchants, lawyers, clergymen, governesses, teachers, shipwrecked mariners, the widows of army officers, and distressed gentlefolk. Many of these societies are still around today. Unsettled by social change and splintered by professional, religious, class, and local allegiances, charity proliferated in Britain in the 19th century. Literally millions of associations, typically local and religious, provided essential services and moral training for the citizenry. One Victorian famously called the period the age of charitable societies, quote, for the cure of every sorrow there are patrons, vice presidents, and secretaries. For the diffusion of every blessing there is a committee, unquote. As the historian G.M. Trevelyan observed, Britain was so overrun with philanthropy that not even the dumb animals were left unorganized. Few causes went unattended, from the great charitable hospitals to watering troughs for horses in the metropolis. Among the many institutions that shed a revealing light on Victorian life was the National Trust Society for the Relief of the Ruptured Poor, which dealt with a disability that afflicted thousands of dockyard laborers. The longstanding rivalries of Christian denominations propelled much of this charitable expansion. The character and vitality of philanthropy varies from country to country. Nations with uniform religions, Catholic Italy, for example, have a different pattern of charity from nations marked by Protestant sectarianism. In the English-speaking world, rival denominations, among them Methodists, Baptists, Quakers, Congregationals, Catholics, and so on, ensured their survival through self-governing institutions. The puritanical principles of the priesthood of all believers and the duty of free inquiry unleashed centrifugal forces that encouraged the emergence of competing sects. As a consequence, the freedom of the religious sect turned into the ideal of the freedom of association. As Brian Harrison has noted, voluntary societies not only relieved distress, but they also diffused ideas, broadened political participation, raised the tone of politics, and cultivated a democratic personality. One of philanthropy's great themes, and one that I've pursued perhaps more than most others, is its relationship to democracy. 
The eminent historian Arthur Schlesinger emphasized the central importance of voluntary association to American democracy. Voluntary societies, he argued, provided the people with their greatest school of self-government. Quote, rubbing minds as well as elbows, they have been trained from youth to take common counsel, choose leaders, harmonize differences, and obey the expressed will of the majority. In mastering the associative way, they have mastered the democratic way, unquote. Whatever the cause, self-governing institutions could achieve their own ad hoc purposes without being stifled by ritualized conventions or immobilized by politics. One-party states are rarely notable for an abundance of philanthropic societies. Witness Vladimir Putin's recent suppression of civic institutions in Russia. The fluid, instrumental traditions of voluntary association made a rigid, monopolistic political system less likely to develop in Britain. The very density of free associations catering to all manner of maladies and aspirations thwarted the revolutionary theorists who anticipated the collapse of the social order. Democracy comes in different forms, and in the past it did not necessarily mean popular sovereignty. Indeed, there is often a tension between democracy's representative form and its institutional form. The Victorians assumed that local institutions outside government control embodied self-government. Institutional self-government, it was argued, not only provided a check on the mechanisms of the central state and the tyranny of the majority, but also guaranteed peaceful competition <coughs> and solidarity based on shared interests. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great philosopher of associational democracy, argued that, quote, the greater the multiplicity of small affairs, the more do men, even without knowing it, acquire facility in prosecuting great undertakings in common. The scope of democratic participation is proportional to the nation's associational life. Take the practice, once common among British charities, of electing beneficiaries by the vote of subscribers. Such institutions, often called voting charities, by the Victorians at least, broaden the base of participation to many of those outside the political nation. These institutions eventually came under attack for electioneering and inefficiency, but for many 19th century benefactors, women in particular, they were the only elections in which a vote could be cast. Voluntary bodies gave a voice to those who were excluded or felt excluded from the political nation. Through associational traditions, the most obscure sects or cultures prospered in their own enclaves of belief. Participation in charitable causes has always been a way of defending the tradition of minorities. In the 19th century, this was particularly important to British Catholics and Jews. In recent decades, voluntary association has become a remarkable feature among Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs, as the growing number of their institutions registered by the Charity Commission confirms. Charitable activity has always been of great value to the givers. In the past, this was particularly true of women contributors. Subscription lists are revealing. At the beginning of the 19th century, under 10% of charitable subscriptions came from women. By the end of the 19th century, it was about 60%. The rise of female contribution, what might be called the feminization of philanthropy, marked one of the great changes not only for philanthropy, but also for the history of women. In voluntary societies, unlike the world, unwider world over which they had little control, <coughs> women could make decisions that had meaning for their own lives, their children's lives, those around them generally. Through contact with charitable organizations, especially those founded by other women, they increased their interest in, among other things, the law, social work, medicine, and politics. As I have argued elsewhere, Philanthropy was the taproot of female emancipation. If philanthropy served the cause of women's emancipation, it also served the working class cause. The charity of the working classes was often casual, unorganized. Still, few charitable campaigns went without their support in the past. When they cooperated with their wealthier neighbors, notably in hospital provision and foreign missions, their philanthropy acted as a springboard into the existing social system. You may be surprised to know that well over half the income of many voluntary hospitals 
in the north of England came from working class donations. There's also abundant evidence that humble men and women established their own cottage hospitals, Sunday and charity schools, soup kitchens, wash houses, servants' institutions, missionary associations, sick clubs, mothers' meetings, and visiting societies. It has received little attention, but Britain owes a huge debt to working class charity for its remarkable level of social stability. Frederick Engels, invariably hostile to middle class philanthropy, argued that the working classes were very much more charitable than the wealthy. But he did not consider that this expression of working class solidarity might work to prevent a revolution. An Edwardian cleric put it directly, quote, the poor breathe an atmosphere of charity. They cannot understand life without it. And it is this kindness of the poor to the poor which stands between our present civilization and revolution. Today, the expression of kindness in humble neighborhoods, both casual and formal, continues to provide social stability. Perhaps the Oxford Center might wish to consider promoting research into this subject, which has received very little attention since the report of the Nathan Committee in the 1950s and a couple of city surveys decades ago. Now let me turn to a brief historical survey of social provision to which charity was once such a major contributor, but which we now largely associate with the state. Now much of this will be familiar to you. In the last century, successive governments were increasingly drawn into the social arena, at first piecemeal with the liberal social reforms early in the century, including old age pensions and national insurance, and then propelled by the depression and the command economy of the Second World War into more wholesale welfare changes. In time, a less personal approach to welfare, the belief in the efficacy of legislation and state intervention became as compelling to its advocates as Christian service had been to the Victorians. The relationship between government and the people changed so dramatically in the post-war years that late Victorian Britain was seen in the words of the great historian G.M. Young as an ancien regime. The creation of the welfare state signaled that there was a decisive winner in the debate over social policy. The extraordinary circumstances of total war had propelled planning of a universal nature and on a scale never seen before. In my view, the foundation of the National Health Service owed as much to the severity of the bomb damage to the voluntary hospitals as it did to any enthusiasm for collectivism. Weakened by the war, Charities were unable to put up a spirited defense against the labor government, which paid scant heed to voluntary associations with their ethic of personal service and selective provision. To collectivists, charity has long been seen as redolent of hierarchical values and unfashionable pieties. As attitudes to poverty shifted, charity was thought too patchy and precarious to cope with the level of distress. Nor were the democratic claims of voluntary institutions so compelling once representative government took hold in a culture growing ever more national in character. Increasingly, policymakers and social theorists took the view that charity was, if not socially divisive, largely irrelevant to the needs of the poor. To those who interpreted society in terms of class conflict, the very idea of noblesse oblige was an insult. In what may be seen as the welfare equivalent of urban renewal, post-war reconstruction ravaged much of the historic fabric of the charitable health and social services. In the greatest confiscation of property since the dissolution of the monasteries, 1,100 voluntary hospitals were taken over by the state. Spare a thought, as philanthropists, for those hospital philanthropists in the past whose donations and legacies wound up in the treasury in 1948. While the government dealt the charitable hospitals a mortal blow, the bishops of the Church of England passed a resolution at the Lambeth Conference in 1948. Quote, we believe that the state is under the moral, moral law of God and is intended by him to, to be an instrument for human welfare. As a result, in the words of the Archbishop of York, 
the church abandoned, that's his word, abandoned the extensive social work of its parish charities in favor of government provision. As I wrote in my book, Charity and Social Service in Modern Britain, the bishops blew out the candles to see better in the dark. Clearly, something fundamental was happening to British culture, once so Christian and voluntary. A traditional liberal idea of balancing rights and duties was being supplanted, as the social critic David Selborne observed, quote, by a politics of dutiless right, unquote. The impression was given, as the former Labor Secretary of State for Health and Social Security, Richard, Richard Crossman, conceded, quote, that socialism was an affair for the cabinet, acting through the existing civil service, unquote. This was the equivalent of saying to the citizenry that all that was required of them was to sit back, pay their taxes, and really leave the resolution of social problems to officialdom. It was perhaps not surprising that politicians in a rapidly expanding state did not encourage popular participation in their reforms. The Victorian idea of institutional democracy was no longer very compelling. Indeed, in the heyday of the welfare state, charitable foundations were sometimes accused of having an undue, undemocratic influence on society. Social theorists offered a blueprint for the reconstruction of society that did not require the participation of foundations, volunteers, or summonses to self-help. If the interests of the state and society were identical, intermediary institutions were superfluous. Ironically, the inheritance that politicians and civil servants mandarins welcomed and built upon was a systematic paternalism that exceeded the voluntarists they so often disavowed. As the burden of care shifted radically to government in the post-war years, charitable service became widely characterized as an amenity or a frill. Those were words widely used in, in radical circle, socialist circles in the 1960s. There were occasional puffs offered to philanthropy by political leaders, but as Crossman observed, to many in the Labor Party, philanthropy was, quote, an odious expression of social oligarchy and churchy bourgeois attitudes, and do-gooding a word as dirty as philanthropy, unquote. Barbara Castle, as Labor Minister of Health, believed that a proper social democracy should show a, quote, a toughness about the proper social, should show a toughness about the battle for equality rather than do-goodery. The use of do-gooder as a term of abuse encapsulated the transformation of values that had taken place. In the post-war decades, British citizens showed little uneasiness with the greater ministerial control over their lives, for they widely identified with the achievements of the welfare state. It was not a strong current in political discussion to argue that effective social reform might come from below, from local institutions that derive their energy and legitimacy from openness to the immediate needs of individuals and communities. Across the political spectrum, politicians sought to replace a sense of local community, which people had built up in the past out of family life and self-governing local institutions, with a sense of national community built out of central bureaucratic structures and party politics. In passing social legislation, Parliament acted in the name of equality and social justice. The beauty of such abstractions perhaps blinded the public to the dangers of overburdening the state. Nor did many people recognize that a highly centralized state might be insensitive to local <coughs> problems on the periphery. An interesting essay could be written on the idea of ministerial responsibility, the notion that by the press of a button in Whitehall, an effective scheme of social progress could be set in train across the country. One charitable official in the 1950s, the secretary of the King's Fund, called ministerial responsibility, quote, a fiction comparable to the refinements of medieval scholasticism. The strategic planning and welfare provision that characterized the post-war decades ended, perhaps not surprisingly, in doubts, reassessment, and recrimination. After the oil crisis in the mid-1970s, the spending limits of the state social services propelled a revival of interest in charitable provision. The new right, with its reversion to the language of the minimal state, 
echoed sentiments that had been little commended since the heyday of Victorian liberalism. But such sentiments were being voiced in a world that had lost its Christian underpinnings, in which more and more women went out to work, leaving them less time for volunteering. Mrs. Thatcher often spoke in glowing terms of volunteerism, but her Victorian values were highly selective. She had a need for political control that expressed itself in greater centralization, not less, and carried forward the very collectivist agenda that she opposed. More important to the revival of, of charity than Mrs. Thatcher and the New Right was the collapse of the Soviet Empire in 1989. It was a powerful reminder of the social and political benefits of voluntary activity. After real existing socialism had been found wanting around the globe, those bourgeois freedoms offered by philanthropists, voluntary agencies, and civic institutions seemed to have more to recommend them. The decline of socialism also shifted the language of politics, reshaping the context in which charity was understood. Long derided by the left as a thinly disguised form of middle-class self-interest, charity became elided with notions of that fertile, if amorphous, concept, civil society. Consequently, former critics became more comfortable with charity, which could be seen to mitigate the atomizing effects of both bureaucratic government and the market. Since 1989, it has become a current in political discussion to argue that effective social reform comes from below, from local institutions that derive their energy and legitimacy from openness to immediate needs of individuals and communities. In Britain, politicians from across the party spectrum concede that the state has failed to elevate the principle of social duty and now praise the virtue of personal responsibility. For his part, Tony Blair felt the need to distance labor from its socialist past and built a new constituency based on notions of community and civil society. Quote, it is by casting aside the rigid dogmas of the past, he said in 1994, that we begin to see a new and exciting role for the voluntary sector, not an optional extra, extra but a vital part of our economy. In recent years, with all the strains on the economy, Britain has reached a curious stage in the evolution of social policy in which the state wants the voluntary societies to do more, and the voluntary societies want the state to do more. Now, the exhausted parties seem to be heading for the ropes in what we have come to call, sometimes admiringly, sometimes not, partnership. In the ambiguous welfare world of today, it has become necessary to use the word, quote, independent, unquote, before the name of a non-governmental charity, for it is no longer obvious that a charitable institution is not a government body. Charity law, after all, does not prohibit government authorities from setting up charities. There are, for example, scores and scores of NHS trusts that have set up charities, which have, has alarmed many independent charities in the field of health. What they object to is that the state institutions have their appeals paid for by the Treasury, which they see as unfair competition. Perhaps the Oxford Center might consider doing some research on this subject. In an era of state charities, partnerships, and public service contracts, there is a growing confusion over what constitutes a charity. The state and many voluntary bodies have become so intertwined that it is rather fanciful to think of them as representing two distinct sectors. Such grayness has created difficulties for many institutions, not least the universities. Many an Oxford student on phoning alumni and college telethons has been greeted with the response, this is from a Somerville student told to me, why should I give it to Oxford? It is a state institution and should be paid for by the taxpayer. This is not helpful. Despite the revival of philanthropy in recent decades, there remains an assumption that in social provision, the state is still in charge. Definitions matter, and today the government, rather than charities, provide them. Victorian legislators had wisely avoided defining charity too narrowly, for they assumed that it was preferable for charities to define the citizenry. For centuries, the standard definition of charity, Christian love or love of one's fellow man, kindness, that was the, these were definitions of the past. But as Britain moved from being a voluntary society to a collectivist society, from a Christian society to a secular one, 
such meanings look decidedly old-fashioned. Consequently, the definition of charity has come up for bureaucratic review to make it more compatible with the national, secular, and corporate priorities of government. An important update on offer comes from the Charities Act of 2006, which defines charity as public benefit. The usage reflects a government agenda, which seeks to offer a concordat with junior partners in the philanthropic sector. But as charity comes under greater ministerial control, it is effectively depersonalized. What, after all, does public mean and public benefit? Groups of claimants or government? Officialdom is a pay impatient with anything small and humble, what Wordsworth called that best portion of man's good life, his little nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love." Unquote. One of the complaints I sometimes hear from charitable campaigners today, particularly women, is that government funding and the corporate nature of many institutions is driving out traditions of personal ministration. In the press, the criticism is typically that today's voluntary workers lack the human touch and spend less and less time on their visits to beneficiaries. One is reminded of the Victorian philanthropist Josephine Butler, who remarked that legislative programs are masculine and charity feminine. In the, if the 19th century saw the feminization of philanthropy, what we are witnessing today, as charity becomes more corporate and bureaucratic, is its masculinization. Philanthropy extends well beyond what the political language can provide. Just as the bureaucratic mind cannot cope with the creative chaos of competing organizations pulling in different directions, post-war British politicians have not been able to imagine any form of democracy operating outside the parameters of ministerial control. In highly centralized mass democracies like Britain, politicians, whatever their allegiance, seem unable to resist regulating and co-opting rival centers of authority. Think of local government. Not surprisingly, many leading philanthropists tiptoe around officialdom, preferring to donate to causes of little interest to government. The Victorian belief that democracy is inherent in independent voluntary institutions is largely beyond the understanding of Britain's political class. In 2001, Gordon Brown remarked that, quote, politicians once thought the man in Whitehall knew best. Now we understand that the mother from the playgroup might know better, unquote. Rest assured, he did not mean it. This is the same Gordon Brown who, in an article in the Times in 1988, decried charity as, quote, a sad and seedy competition for public pity, unquote. As chancellor and later prime minister, he assumed that one way to invigorate his political agenda was by further regulating and financing charities. Government funding for charities escalated dramatically. As the state insinuated itself in the folds of charity, the government, not the voluntary citizen, has become the presiding judge of what constitutes charity or public benefit. As Tocqueville argued, a democratically elected government works for the happiness of the citizenry that wants to be the only agent and final arbiter of that happiness. In an age of egalitarianism, he added, the citizenry is attracted by uniformity of legislation passed by a single central power. Through social legislation, the state serves the physical needs and regulates the affairs of its citizens, but turns them into dependent clients and fixes them, as Tocqueville put it, irrevocably in childhood. Like most Victorians, Tocqueville would have thought a minister or a ministerial office for civil society, a contradiction in terms. Britain's present minister, Rob Wilson, spends much of his budget on providing direct grants to failing charities and advising others on how to apply for government support. In practice, the so-called big society may simply lead to bigger government. Today, politicians of all stripes tend to see charitable institutions, at least in the health and social services, as agencies under their supervision. Traditionally, charities saw themselves as having their own objectives free of outside restraints. Government stresses professional competence and efficiency. 
Traditionally, charity stressed personal service and moral purpose. Government expects welfare to be systematic and comprehensive. Traditionally, charities valued selectivity and improvisation. Government provision depends on compulsory taxation. It is not religious or altruistic, but quantitative and materialist in conception. The notion that we become compassionate through compulsion and proxy is a flattering self-deception, especially as universal benefits often accrue to those who do not need them. Charitable provision, on the other hand, cannot be extorted by force. Given its selective character and limited resources, it is less concerned with the equitable distribution of services, if only because it does not have the power to achieve it. What it can do, however, is to extend the humanity of the government services and, in a well-worn phrase, pioneer ahead of the state. Philanthropy's proponents have flourished in a liberal polity, often underpinned by religious belief that is primarily individualistic, even though it may also be egalitarian. Distinctions between charity and government action are thus deeply rooted, not least in thinking about their respective roles and boundaries. Here is a definition of voluntarism in keeping with such distinctions. It comes from a book titled Voluntary Action in a Changing World, published in 1979 by Francis Gladstone, a research officer in the National Council for Voluntary Organizations. Quote, the essence of voluntary action is more a question of independence and autonomy, and its fundamental antithesis is statutory action that is, activity carried out under the aegis of local or central government." Unquote. Gladstone's definition, which made such a sharp distinction between voluntary and state provision, has been seriously challenged in recent years. Take, for example, the view of Martin Lewis, now chair of the NCVO and chairman of the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. In contrast to the NCVO of the past, he is content to promote voluntary institutions as servants of the state. Only this month, he encouraged more charities to apply for government contracts to deliver services. When Gladstone wrote his book in the late 1970s, about 10% of overall charitable revenue came from government sources. In recent decades, successive governments have dramatically increased the funding available to voluntary bodies through grants and service contracts. The estimates now vary but it seems likely that about 45% of charitable revenue now comes from state sources. It's rising. Whatever the precise figures, we are dealing with large sums of government money, something now in the order of 14 billion pounds a year transferred from the taxpayer. This figure is several billion more than the sums raised each year from individual donations, which are in decline. At present, about 41,000 charities about a quarter of all registered charities have a direct financial relationship with the state. Of these, it has been estimated recently that 27,000 receive more than 75% of their income from government sources. These tend to be institutions dealing with the health and social services, employment, and training. Extracting information on the percentage of government income of individual societies can be difficult. In many annual reports, there is a lack of transparency on this issue. Charities are under no legal duty to advise in their accounts on how much, if any, of their income in the year is derived from government sources. Still, from available records, if you can penetrate them, uh, it is clear that even once fiercely independent institutions receive substantial amounts of their income from government. Last year, the Prince's Trust, which was never known for getting money from the government, received 29% of its income from public sector contracts. The NCVO, for its part, receives about 40% of its income from government sources. No wonder the chairman speaks the way he does, perhaps. Government funding for charity has many advocates. It is, after all, much easier to apply for a local authority grant than to rattle a 10 or run a marathon. Most of the work done by state-contracted charities is undoubtedly valuable, but the nagging issue of independence will not go away. Since the 1980s, a few social critics and smattering of politicians have argued that the government funding and the voluntary ethos are incompatible. In the eyes of such commentators, myself included, obviously, 
we are witnessing a further stage in the perfection of the state monolith under the guise of partnership. What one charitable rector, director calls, quote, a cultural takeover by stealth, unquote. Tellingly, the charities which take government money, the more they take, the more they proclaim their independence. As charitable agencies become increasingly accountable to government, they are prone to forfeit their role as critics of government policy. The growth of partnerships has dulled the candor of charitable officials. Some years ago, the Association of Charitable Foundations observed that, quote, in a world where funding comes from service contracts, there is a danger that passion is neutralized in the interests of financial survival. People who do what they are paid to do rather than what they care deeply about doing, unquote. A hospital voluntarist put it to me years ago, no one is rude to his rich uncle. The appetite for state contracts and grants has grown to the point where the question is now being asked how institutions paid for out of compulsory taxation, which would not exist without state subsidies, can be called voluntary. In such cases, the government, not the charity, sets the agenda. In 1990, the Home Office directed that in dealing with voluntary organizations, government departments should establish clear policy objectives and grants that did not relate to subject, such objectives should be phased out. With the implementation of that policy, the government sought to enlist the voluntary sector for its own purposes. As most of us will agree, charitable independence is a slippery concept, which has received several tortuous analyses in recent years. The next time it is under examination, I would suggest that the employment of a language philosopher, perhaps one of our Oxford ones, rather than a team of lawyers. Perhaps the Oxford Center can help us on this front. In the view of a growing number of commentators, the question of independence has become the most pressing issue for modern British philanthropy. The country remains a nation of joiners who continue to revive our communities from below, but we may be reaching a tipping point when more and more individuals will assume that charities are state-funded and lose interest in contributing to worthy causes. For decades, charities have been, as I put it years ago, swimming into the mouth of Leviathan. Their increased dependence on the state has blurred the boundaries of charitable and government provision, which is further complicated by the many government agencies that have set up their own charities. The balance of power in the voluntary sector is tipped in favor of large, publicly funded institutions, which sometimes act more like political pressure groups than charitable campaigns. The many letters in the press from institutions pleading with the government for further funding is telling. The 130,000 or so charities that do not receive state support, typically very small institutions, rarely have a voice in the media and are largely outside the debate, though they will be influenced by its results. Charitable foundations, which are well represented here today, have an advantage that most voluntary bodies do not enjoy as they do not have to go cap in hand either to the public or to the government. It is self-evident that neither charity nor government has lived up to public expectations of social provision. The charge once leveled at Victorian charity that it could not cope with the volume of social need is now leveled at the government. The state will continue to take the lead in welfare provision but whatever changes are being considered that affect the relationship between the state and charity, it is worth putting them in the context of first principles and clearer distinctions, which the merging of the two sectors has clouded. Sadly, in a typically British sort of way, we have become accustomed to politically expedient quick fixes, which have left us in our present state of confusion. Whatever the Oxford Center could do to illuminate this trend and to provide pointers to the future would be helpful. In recent decades, much of the former hostility between left and right over social provision has been diffused. It is likely that partnerships between the state and charitable bodies are likely to grow. But partnerships should not mean amalgamation. If the contract culture and state funding continues to expand, it may have unhappy consequences for the many independent institutions that struggle to compete for individual donations. 
But there are bigger issues at stake. Voluntary action provides a democratic safeguard. What Stanley Baldwin called the standardizing pressure of the state's mechanism, unquote. Tension between the state and independent charitable institutions with their different agendas and contrasting democratic forms is both desirable and invigorating. It has been unfortunate for modern British philanthropy discuss that discussions about it are commonly limited to interpretations inherited from government. It is thus easy to look sight, lose sight of the variety in the voluntary movement and the moral, religious, and political principles that underlie so many of its causes. William Beveridge's belief that the distinguishing marks of a free society were to be found in voluntary action is a useful reminder of philanthropy's other qualities. His life's work, which began in the Edwardian world of charity and ended with the post-war ascendant state, suggests the obvious, that a persuasive case can be made out for a balance between diverse voluntary initiatives and uniform state assistance in a democratic society. Finding an effective balance in the provision of welfare is likely to be as elusive in the future as it has been in the past. In the search for it, we must not lose sight of philanthropy's other meanings, which are so much a part of its distinctive contribution to national well-being. For in a diversity and principled rivalry, the love of the ad hoc remedy and the seemingly inefficient muddle that typify philanthropic activity, the nation has gained immeasurable moral and democratic benefits. A social philosophy that undermines the freedom of association and the duties of citizenship is one in which democracy atrophies. To the liberal mind, the political maturity of a country is not measured by the size and spending of its government. It is measured by a polity that provides the conditions of liberty conducive <coughs> to philanthropy and by what citizens willingly do for themselves and one another. Thank you.